0: And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your co-host, Slate Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This season of Club Book looks and sounds a little different than our previous seasons. Due to COVID-19, we are bringing seasons to you virtually instead of our traditional live events hosted in libraries around the Twin Cities Metro. Our format will be a little different too. Events this season will consist of facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. And will also include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. With that, I'll turn it over to our host for this evening's event. Enjoy.
1: Welcome everybody to uh, Club Book with Dar Jamail. Uh, My name is Maggie Lorenz. I am the executive director for Lower Phelan Creek Project and we are a small uh, nonprofit uh, organization on the east side of St. Paul dedicated to conservation restoration work. And um, I'm also the director for Waukon Teepee Center, uh, which is a project of Lower Phelan Creek uh, that will be an environmental and Cultural Interpretive Center, based in the Bruce Vento Nature Sanctuary here on the east side of St. Paul. Club Book is a program of MELSA, the Metropolitan Library Service Agency, and made possible through a Minnesota Cultural Arts Heritage Fund, uh, coordinated by Library Strategies, part of Friends of the St. Paul Public Library, Club Book has been part of the Twin Cities literary landscape and in some form for the past decade now, but has never had a season quite like this. Um, Also, thanks to our partnering bookseller, Red Balloon Bookshop, acclaimed journalist and climate change uh, activist Dar Jamail is the author and most recently of the book, uh, The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption. Um, so it's part travelogue and part journalistic expose, The End of Ice offers a sobering look at the geographic front lines, areas of the planet that are most immediately and visibly impacted by global warming. Uh, frontline reporting is Dar's Forte and he's cut his teeth as a wartime correspondent in Iraq as one of only a handful of so-called unembedded reporters to travel without military escort and report out for Western audiences after the 2003 invasion by American-led forces. Um, Dar's pivot to climate issues stemmed from his personal passion for mountaineering, which affords a stronger connection with nature, something that Jamail says so many people living in urban areas have lost or left behind, which I can't agree with more as an environmental um, organization based in the urban area. Um, We do a lot of work trying to reconnect people with our natural places. So um, very, very true. Um, His anticipated follow up to the end of ICE now in development is a collaboration with his co-author Stan Rushworth titled The Changing Earth, Indigenous Voices from Turtle Island, and it's an innovative blend of research and reporting Uh, His new project aims to spotlight the invaluable yet so often marginalized perspectives of indigenous people, as they grapple with global climate disruption and interrelated challenges. So I can't wait to ask him more about this developing project, among other things. Um, Also, we want to welcome your questions from the audience um, as we get going here. So if you have any questions at any point in time, please drop them in the comments thread on Facebook and our um, you know, Tech Monitor will route them to me, and I'll get the question to the author. So, with that, um, welcome everybody, and please, Dar, take it away.
2: Thanks very much, Maggie, for that generous introduction. And uh, I-, I want to also start by thanking David Katz and the St. Paul Public Library and Friends of the Library for uh, inviting me to be part of your program. and then also, of course, for, Gracefully rolling with these dramatic changes that we've all had to roll with thanks to the global pandemic. This has shifted from an in person event to uh, Here we are. Um, So thanks everybody for who was involved in pulling this together. Um, I my talks around the device have shifted rather dramatically from when the book came out in my original book tour to Kind of where I am now, uh, I used to give a whole lot of information about the uh, really at this point horrific climate crisis that we 're in and I am going to give a little bit of that for context but then move on uh, further along uh, into that and and i 'll take you there with me um, first of all I, I just want to for context of, of what I will spend the bulk of this time talking about is is I think we, we do need to have a a, a good overview of where we stand today as far as how far along we are and specifically about the increasing acceleration of the climate crisis. Um, So for example uh, when the book The End of Ice came out in uh, January 2019, right before it came out uh, the Smithsonian Institute's magazine, the Smithsonian Magazine, gave a review of the book and it was generally favorable but their one critique was that uh, I had gone a bit far in always going to the worst case scenario in the uh, predictions and the projections with the climate crisis uh, and and sort of kind of painting the book as though it was a little bit alarmist. Um, But then um, in uh, um, uh, December of 2019, so a little bit less than a year after that review, the Smithsonian Magazine rated the book as one of their top 10 science books for that year. Um, My point is that obviously I didn't change uh, something in the book after it had been published, but my point is that things are accelerating so rapidly that all of a sudden uh, a lot of these worst case projections started to become accepted as fact across the board for the most part. Um, Some examples of that, uh, even bringing it up to very, very recent data there was a report less than two weeks ago, uh, a study that showed the Western Antarctic Ice Sheet, even if the Paris Climate Accords were met, which of course, any anyone studying the science as well as the soft politics around the Paris Climate Accord knows, there's no way that at this point we're going to hold uh, planetary warming to 1.5 C, or let alone 2 C. And the study showed that even if, we did adhere to that and did manage miraculously to pull that out that there's enough warming already baked into the system that the western antarctic ice sheet will collapse Uh, and that alone will add eight feet of sea level rise globally Uh, another example also this summer one of the leading scientists studying the Greenland ice sheet said that irreversible melting is already in play uh, Greenland's days are numbered as far as how much of that ice sheet will remain. The question is not uh, if, it's when. Uh, and and it, it didn't, of course, the person didn't talk about how, uh, that all of Greenland would melt. But uh, even if it's half of it, uh, if all of Greenland melted, that's 20 feet of global sea level rise. So you can think about the implications of a leading scientist there talking about Um, Look, it's already, there's irreversible melting baked in, and uh, Greenland is is, uh, in big trouble. Um, Similarly, uh, we can talk about permafrost in the Arctic, which holds vast stores of uh, CO2 and organic material and and, uh, methane. And that is accelerating uh, the warming of which and the thawing that is to a point where one of the leading scientists I interviewed for my book, Vladimir Romanovsky, uh, had talked about warming that was already happening meters down into the perma- permafrost of of one to three c warming happening even ten and even more meters below the surface and then since the book uh, came out, uh, he was co author of a study that showed that the permafrost was then already melting seventy years uh, faster than they had expected it to um, so already there are these chains set in motion that uh, um, so many feedback loops are, are, are so far advanced that uh, um, it it's, uh, gives us an idea of how, how rapidly this acceleration is progressing. Um, I also, you know, I, I think an important thing to point out, given that we're having a meeting like this online instead of in person and all the dramatic changes we've had to make in our lives because of the global pandemic, that the causes of COVID-19 being released into the world are uh, the same causes for the climate crisis, which, which if we really boil it down, is a deep abiding disrespect for nature by the dominant culture, i.e. global capitalism, and uh, that same culture's inability and unwillingness to respect the planet. Um, So writing this book, The End of Ice, took me on a journey that led me into understanding more deeply that the most important thing is how we relate and how we live with and, and part of being part of the earth, that we're not separate from her, but that we are very much a functional part of the earth. Um, that said, I, I went into the book still looking to affect some kind of positive change, which was the same spirit that I brought into my journalism that had led me into Iraq. And, other environmental reporting before I started this book, um, so it was it was that spirit of wanting to affect positive change, uh, the idea that if people had better information and better choices and ensuing better behavior would result um, and and but when I started really digging into the research of the book, before I started the actual field trips, going onto to the frontline places with scientists, I was in a writing residency and I uh, had an experience where pulling all the data together into what was going to be in each chapter at at that moment, and then looking at everything together, I became already overwhelmed by how understanding how far along we already were in the climate crisis, and uh, really already started to grapple with what's the point? uh, Why even write this book? And at the time, uh, a friend of mine who's a Zen meditation teacher would come by for coffee, and I'm out in this residency for three months by myself being overwhelmed by this data. And he sat with me and I explained to him, I said, look, uh, his name's Nick uh, Terry. I said, Nick, I don't even see the point in, in doing this book. We're, we're in such big trouble. And he said, look, Dar, if, if just there's one tiny organism in the Amazon rainforest that gets to exist on this planet for one more week because you are going to write this book, then it's worth it. And so um, that really, really touched me, uh, but it was enough for me to go forward with with the uh, uh the project. And and um uh so I, I did, but then by the by the end of the book, a couple of years later, after all of the field trips and, and even you know, the more data comes in, the worse things get, as as we're seeing, and as I outlined at the start, um, it's it's very, very clear all the feedback loops that are kicked in, 93.4% of all the heat humans have added to the atmosphere has been absorbed into the oceans, half of that since just 1997. There's no way to get that that heat out of the oceans, no matter what we do. Um, Just story after story like that of of, uh, how far along we are and that any kind of human effort, uh, tech fixes, things like this, um, political changes, uh, while while that might cause a mild amount of mitigation, the reality is there's so much already locked into the system. Um, I, I, I came across one one uh, situation up in Utqiagvik, Alaska, which is the northernmost village uh, in in uh, North America, and it's it's on the permafrost and it's right on the shore of the Arctic Ocean, and the village uh, already the permafrost is thawing, so so light poles are starting to tilt over. They're having to kind of re brace up buildings that are slumping as as everything thaws out from underneath them. But then the Arctic Ocean, because the sea ice had had retreated so much that uh, winds now were causing bigger and bigger waves to to blow on shore and more rapidly erode the thawing permafrost, and so. The, the shoreline was basically moving in to engulf the village. And as that was progressing, what they were doing to buy themselves time was when I was there uh, doing my reportage for the book, the there was a big front loader that was out there working every day, um, maintaining a big 20-foot high earthen berm between the village right on the shore of the Arctic Ocean to try to slow it down and, and prepare it for the next time a storm hit. and you know, it was really, you know, building an earthen berm to try to stop the onslaught of an ocean from rising seas, coupled with bigger storms, coupled with thawing permafrost, uh, was this uh, really a a rather feeble uh, attempt by humans to kind of slow down what was already happening to the planet. And I feel like that was a really great analogy of of, if we expand that out to include the macro of Earth, um, there's no stopping uh, what's already well underway. So I've had to come to terms with all of that and find basically new reasons for getting out of the bed in the morning and and more succinctly, um, really have had to live into the, the subtitle of the book, which is finding meaning in the path of climate disruption. Um, in that sense, the book itself has lived me into a new way of being of of being forced to find a deeper acceptance out of necessity for uh, what is happening on earth right now and so if if there isn 't a fix to all of this, then then what is there left to do and so I just want to share a, a few things that i 've learned since the book came out that I use on a near daily basis now to uh, uh, basically, just how how to be and, and what to do, given the gravity of all of these crises, not just the climate crisis but the political crisis, the economic crisis, the global pandemic, the deep systemic crises that are raging across the United States right now um, there 's so many crises, and so all of us are feeling absolutely overwhelmed, uh, not just by the climate crisis but Speaking more specifically to the climate crisis, um, what I found is that a daily connection to the earth for me is uh, a bi-directional connection, not just what let me go try to find some peace with the earth, but to go out there and really listen and be with the earth uh, on a daily basis is is mandatory for me. If I skip that even for a day, uh, depression and a lot of other negative emotions uh, will quick, quickly arise and that's been a very important thing for me. And uh, I, I, was, I learned of a story that I want to read from the back of my book. It's about a page that really speaks to this and, and I didn't, after a lot of years as a, uh, as a mountaineer as well as working as a guide, a mountain guide up in Alaska and doing uh, rescues, on Denali up there, uh, when I heard this story, I really understood, oh, this is, this is why I've always climbed and why it's always been so important for me to spend time out in nature. And um, so it's an old story, uh, taught, uh, uh, told by a storyteller, Dr. Daryl Wilson, who was uh, of what's known as the Pitt River Nation of Northeastern California. Uh, Daryl Wilson tells of Mies Misa a small but powerful spirit that inhabits Akuyet, a mountain that the white man calls Mount Shasta, located at the southern end of the Cascade Range in North Central California. Mis Misa is a spirit force that balances the earth with the universe and the universe with the earth. Wilson says that Akuyet is, quote, the most necessary of all of the mountains upon earth, for Mis Misa keeps the earth the proper distance from the sun and keeps everything in its proper place when wonder and power stir the universe with a giant yet invisible canoe paddle. Mismisa keeps the earth from wandering away from the rest of the universe. It maintains the proper seasons and the proper atmosphere for life to flourish as earth changes seasons on its journey around the sun, End quote. The mountain, the story tells us, must be worshipped because Mismisa dwells deep within it. To climb the mountain with a pure heart and with real resolve and to communicate with quote, all of the light and all of the darkness of the universe is to place your spirit in a direct line from the songs of Mies Misa to the heart of the universe. While in this posture, the spirit of man slash woman is in perfect balance and harmony, end quote. As for long as Mies Misa's instructions are followed with sincerity, society will be sustained. Its inhabitants will survive for the long term. Quote, the most important of all the lessons, it is said, is to be so quiet in your being that you constantly hear the soft singing of Mismisa, end quote. However, the story also warns that by not listening to Mis Misa, the song will fade. Mesmisa will depart, quote, and the earth and all of the societies upon earth will be out of balance, and the life therein vulnerable to extinction and it's clear to me after hearing that story uh that the dominant culture has long since stopped listening to mis misa and that one thing i can do and i think everybody can do now to serve is to go back and start listening in the ways that we can and each person this is going to be a very personal thing a personal way that we do this for me it entails uh, lots of time in the mountains or uh, out in the, the land around nearby where I live uh, and, and things like this. But I think each one of us, it, it would serve us to find and get back to, if we're not already doing that, a way to, to listen more closely. Um, and a, an experience I had two days ago, I was up in Olympic National Park nearby where I live. and I was up in the mountains and I I came across this old remnant glacier and there there used to be uh, a full glacier there but because of the climate crisis it's it's down to just a remnant glacier kind of a tired small bit of ice underneath buried largely by a lot of, of rock and debris and dirt but uh it's still there and it was there was blue ice it was a, a warm day uh, lots of melting streams running off of it And um, I really felt that that this is, it's important, I think, for me and for all of us to really understand what's happening on the earth and and empathize with that. And I felt that this glacier, which is truly a a living part of the planet, was going away. And I, I really felt a deep sadness about that when I was up there standing with it. And I took my water bottle and I filled it up with some of that cool water and was able to drink some of it and then walked a little further and there was a big boulder and there was a a bit of a gap in front of the boulder where um, as the the water that was rushing underneath uh, was pushing air. And as I walked up to that boulder, I could feel this this very cool breeze uh, amongst a very warm day kind of come over me and it felt really like the breath of the the glacier. And um, to really have all those emotions of the gratitude of being there and experiencing this as well as the sadness knowing that um, odds are very high that I will outlive what's left of that glacier and that children being born today will never be able to go see it and really experience all of that. Uh, That has value as as, uh, interesting as that might sound to some folks. Um, But I think that's part of the listening for me. Uh, And also because of when I listen and go out and have those very direct personal experiences with the planet, I care about it. And of course, we we tend to protect and take care of things that that we care about and have feelings for. Um, I also, another thing that was brought to my attention towards the end of working on this book um, by my friend Stan Rushworth, is he pointed out to me the difference between uh, kind of the settler colonialist mentality of what are my rights versus a more indigenous perspective of that we're born onto this planet with two primary obligations. One is to serve the planet, and two is to serve future generations of all species. And when I've, I've had enough time now since this book was was published to really practice that and really kind of let go of my expectations and what I think, should be happening regarding climate policy or what people should or shouldn't be doing and all of this, and really practice getting up and and, and and asking how can I best be of service to the planet and of course that includes human beings as well not just not just other species and and doing that day after day week after week, and especially in the recent months um, I've, I've been given opportunities to do that when I get up and I, I ask what else can I do then this next project that we'll talk about a little bit, Maggie and I during the Q&A, that, that came into fruition and that's, that's now a, a, another thing that I can do to help serve. Other things have looked like friends from Oregon recently coming up and helping uh, share meals with them and talk with them and spend time with them while they're up here recovering because one of them, their, their homes just literally burnt all the way to the ground in one of those those fires down in Talent, Oregon, or other a younger couple coming up kind of from Los Angeles looking at where are they going to land, you know knowing that they didn't really want to stay down there uh, for for many obvious reasons um, and so things like this, just different ways uh, to be of service and and con- consistently asking to be of shown to be shown what to do, and then of course um, how to do that and so since then, um, you know, it's it's that has brought in a peace and an equilibrium to me that I simply didn't have before I worked on the book and while I worked on the book. But really it's been, you know, the book's been a project of, of me kind of being shown to live into that way of being now that I have all of this information and understand it deeply. But then finding a way, okay, regardless of how bleak things appear, on all fronts, uh, we have our work cut out for us, or I have no shortage of ways to be a service and to help other people and, and the planet herself going forward because none of us knows what's going to happen, but we, we always get to choose how are we going to be during this time? And I feel like that is a very important thing to keep in mind uh, when, we, when we talk about how are we going to comport ourselves during this time? Uh, when so many crises are converging all at once. Um, So with that, uh, I I will just wrap up by repeating, uh, you know, to conclude this, uh, if you're really uh, struggling what to do, you know, there's so much fear and panic in the air today. Um, I always keep it very simple and come back down to uh, what's working for me right now that I'd like to pass along is, consistently ask how how to be of service and then listen and then act on what you hear.
1: That was great. Oh wow, thanks Dar for that wonderful talk and discussion about your book. I just finished reading it today. Um, You and I talked last week um, as we kind of had like a little pre-meeting about um, doing this presentation tonight and uh, I wasn't quite finished at that time but you you mentioned to me that you were interested in how i might um like the conclusion or respond to the ending of the book and i was just i was wondering how you were going to wrap it up because during the during the whole reading of the book i was so uh, just overwhelmed uh with sadness and you talked a lot about this in tonight in your talk but just about you know working in this type doing this type of work um being just um, so um, deep into the research of of climate disruption and it can feel really hopeless. And you even mentioned in your conclusion that you went through like a a phase of deep depression while you were writing the book. And um, I know you talked about some things uh, in the book and here tonight, but I don't know if there's anything that you wanna expand on at all about, you know, how sometimes you were able to pull yourself out of those places and keep moving forward. I know thinking about how you can best be in service, um, but it can just be really hard sometimes when you're just um, have accepted the fact of where we are now with our climate.
2: Uh, sure, Maggie, thanks. Um, it's, I do spend a, a, a significant amount of time in the, in the concluding chapter of the book Getting into talking about um, grief and talking about hope versus um, you know being hopeful versus hopeless and all of this and um, you know I I personally um, you know have I went from being one of these people that was absolutely for sure human race is going extinct and there's no question about it to uh, being put in my place essentially by an elder. Um, who challenged me on this. He said, look, you're that kind of arrogance with that kind of hubris of you as one human being saying for sure you can tell exactly what's going to happen on the earth to the human species. That's the same kind of arrogance that caused this crisis. Mm. And, and I, I, I sat with that and I, I knew that he was right. And even though I still have in the book that it does appear as though humans are, are going to drive ourselves extinct, I have to have enough humility to say, but we don't know for sure. And, and I mean, to unpack that a little bit, I was sitting in Camp 41 in the Amazon, the famous study camp founded by Dr. Thomas Lovejoy. I have a whole chapter on this in my book, the esteemed uh, biologist, uh, uh, biodiversity expert and um, you know, he's been studying the Amazon longer than I've been alive. And we're sitting there and looking out at this amazing place. And I said, Dr. Lovejoy, we must know so much about the Amazon. And he says, we've barely scratched the surface. You know, we don't, we don't know hardly anything. And it's, it's that kind of humility that I'm talking about, where the more you learn about the earth and how complex she is and all the interrelatedness and everything, the more you, we understand we only know this this much. And that's not, I, I don't share that to give a sense of false hope, but that there's there's an amount of humility required, I think that, look, especially from an indigenous perspective that we've already, the human species has already been through so many different collapses. Uh, empires have come and gone, the genocide of Native Americans in this country, and and, indigenous people are still here and their culture is still here and they're still walking forward. And so, again, kind of the hubris of a settler colonial culture to come in and act like, oh, now the sky is falling, you know, I mean, for example, another, this might sound a bit funny or maybe a little gallows humor, but it's, I've taken comfort from it. So Stan Rushworth of of Cherokee, Heritage, who is the co-author of the next pro- project that I'm working on that you mentioned during the introduction, you know, I, I would call him, reading after reading the news and getting very worked up about uh, the latest egregious thing that President Trump had done, and he'd just say, welcome to Indian country, you know, and so I, I think there's a great leveling happening, and uh, that's an important thing for a lot of us to remember, too, but... Uh, there's a lot more I mean I don't I don't want to spend too much time on on the one question I know there's others but I I hope that touches on at least a little bit of it so
1: I'm just curious in your you know adult life young like there was any like, you know, moment or person in your life that kind of set you on the path to where you are now it's kind of like an activist
2: well it's I, I first of all my parents uh Took us into nature a lot as kids. I grew up down in Houston, and so that meant sometimes going down to the coast on Galveston and spending time down on the beach there, and then other times going into the hill country uh, of, of Central Texas, and then a little bit later, uh, getting to go see the Rocky Mountains in Colorado. So it was it was pretty typical for us to be taken out as children in, into. Uh, for, for us, what was experienced is kind of the wilds, you know even though now from my perspective it, it wasn't really but point is that we were my parents did a great job of exposing us to nature on a, a regular basis even though we were growing up in a city and, and I owe a debt of gratitude to them for that and that really because of that introduction, when I first saw mountains in the, like I said the Rockies in Colorado, it was love at first sight. And I have since that time uh, always oriented my life around living in close proximity to mountains with a couple of brief periods uh, as exceptions. And it was really in, in always doing that and spending increasing amounts of time in the mountains. Again, it comes back to my own personal experience of that Mies Misa story that I was going into the mountains to listen before I knew that's what I was even doing. And I didn't really understand, excuse me, what I was, what that was all about fully until Stan shared that story with me, as was told to him by his elder, Daryl Wilson. And um, so it was really that, always going into the mountains and listening, which is what, uh, it's what, where I heard the message to go to a rock. And I don't mean like hearing words, but I mean, I just really felt in my heart you need to go there. And I went. And then every big decision that's to me in my life has come from uh, really time up in the mountains listening, even when I'm not consciously, okay, I'm going to sit here and listen. But when I'm up there, that stuff happens. And and I feel like that's a probably a very, very, <clears throat> excuse me, co- more common experience for indigenous people. But for someone not raised in that culture, um, that's, that's what I've had taught to me through, uh people like my friend Stan.
1: Last week we talked about the film that was coming out um, from Patagonia with the Redford called Public Trust and um, I'm not sure if you had a chance to watch it but I, I had a chance to watch that over the weekend but there was this scene in the film that was about a battle between um, Utah politicians and Native American nations um, and there was a quote from a politician who said, I-, "I would drill in a cemetery if there was oil there."
2: You know, I, I, especially in the in the flow of working on this book and watching what was happening to the planet and how fast things were unraveling, um, I would just be flabbergasted to see even, even say Republican Congresspeople and senators uh, who have kids and grandkids, how can they knowingly be passing legislation that's going to decimate the planet, the water, the air, the food, everything that we rely on for our very lives? How can they do that even with their own kids and grandkids knowing what's at stake? And I I, I understand greed, I understand sociopathy and all of this, but that didn't quite go far enough until uh, I read Jack Forbes' book, Columbus and Other Cannibals. Jack Forbes, is, he's no longer with us, but he was a Native American scholar from UC Davis. And it's an integral book because it talks about waytico disease. Uh, was uh, is a word for cannibalism. And it's a its a psychological condition that Forbes describes in the book where if you have waytico disease, then you think it's okay to take another person's resources or life for your own benefit. And, and then, so when I apply that to the dominant culture, i.e. global capitalism, in this case, these people are uh, sick. They have Waitiko disease because they think it's okay to just take and take and take of everything. and, And that's somehow going to be okay. And at this stage of the game, with global pandemic, crashing global economy, uh, a country lurching into outright authoritarian fascism, uh, somehow that it's okay, they, these people think it's, that that's okay. And the only thing that's explained to me uh, in a way that makes sense, that kind of insanity is is Waitiko disease. and. Uh, Again, it's a it's an indigenous perspective, but I think it's the it's the only one that's really right on that answers that question.
1: Wow, that's really fascinating. Um, A reader is asking: Has your research led you to any conclusions about how affluence and other privileges impact how directly impacted by change?
2: Absolutely, there's no question that affluent countries are responsible for the bulk of uh, CO2 emissions and methane emissions uh, across the planet. In fact, <clears throat> um, The Guardian, I, I cite one uh, uh, article that they published uh, in my book where they talk about how uh, there's 100 companies that are responsible for 75 percent believe it's 75% of all CO2 emissions on the planet, 100 companies. Uh, those companies are not in, deve- most of them are not in developing countries. And then of course, um, the carbon footprint, for example, of someone living in America, the United States, that is, uh, is, is it dwarfs those living in developing countries where those consequently are the people usually taking it on the chin the hardest from climate impacts and extreme weather events, yet had the least to do with causing the problem in the first place. So there's a dramatic, dramatic difference in um, how affluent countries are really, in the, in the bulk of it, causing the crisis and uh, in some instances feeling it less. Although now, I mean, I can talk to you here, uh, you know, I'm in uh, Washington State, we're once again engulfed in wildfire smoke, and then of course there's wildfires across this state and Oregon and California. So increasingly people in affluent countries like the United States are feeling the effects more directly, uh, like say someone living on the Delta of Bangladesh, or someone living on the edge of the Arctic Ocean up in Utqiagvik, Alaska. But this is why also in the book, I did have um, two different chapters on where indigenous communities one, uh, uh, the Anungan people of St. Paul Island in the Pribilofs, and the others uh, up in Utkiagvik, Alaska, where uh, their, their lot, literally their physical existence, and then of course all of their culture and spiritual beliefs, everything is being directly impacted, and they're literally under existential threat. Where it's, of course, those communities have practically a negligible. CO2 footprint. So again, this this disparity is a very, very common theme when we talk about this crisis. So yeah, the next question, uh, reading it from the chat from you, Maggie, uh, tell us about the publication journey behind The End of Ice. Did you as a journalist always imagine this as a full-length book or did the project morph into this final form over time? Did you have trouble getting a publisher to run with it? Um, Yeah, so it's it's an interesting story of the book. I actually was under contract with the New Press to do another book uh, about Iraq. I'd already written two books, and then co-authored a third about uh, the the war, the invasion and occupation of Iraq. Um, Had a contract set up, but then um, uh, uh, again, it was an example of something inside just knew this book was brewing. Um, I'd lived ten years up in Alaska, and and had always watched the really dramatic changes uh, in the climate up there, watching glaciers recede, things changing on even an annual basis up there. So the seed was always back in, uh, planted to, to do a book like this. Um, and as it got closer to really starting work on this Iraq book, I knew, no, that's, um, this is actually the book I really wanna do. And so um, thankfully the new press was gracious enough and just okay, we'll swap that book out with this one. And um, um, so, so that's how it ended up coming into being. But I, I did essentially want to do it as a book like my Iraq book, my first one, where I wanted to uh, go to the front lines where some of these dramatic changes are happening and go with leading scientists and really try to bring the reader a very visceral, personal, emotional uh, perspective on it. Uh, especially because a lot of these places, and especially now with the virus, um, most people will never be able to go.
1: Do you wanna talk a little bit more about your next project? How far along you are? When do you think the uh, next book will be released?
2: Well, um, sure. So the next project as as Maggie spoke about in the, in the introduction, it's a book uh, co-authored with Stan Rushworth, whom uh, both she and myself mentioned earlier, uh, who's, uh, uh, a book called The Changing Earth, Indigenous Voices from Turtle Island. And so what we're doing is we're already about halfway through the interviews and we've chosen different people from all walks of life, older, younger, reservation, -reservation, non-reservation, just Indigenous people from um, all across the country of all different perspectives, uh, academic, -academic, uh, non-academic, on the converging crisis. How did we get here? And, and where do we go from here? And so far, with uh, about half the interviews done, a little bit more than half now, I can say that that book is changing me even more than The End of Ice and has played a large role in helping me find this equilibrium that I was talking about earlier, where having this kind of broader perspective and this really deeper, deeper kind of ballast that's come with that on Look, you know the Earth has been through these massive massive cycles before, and yes, this one's human caused and so much more abrupt and, and and much more catastrophic in so many ways but um here's what we've done, and here's how we've gotten through things, and this is how we're looking to be right now as we look into the future and and it's a it's been a very, very profound experience so far getting to work on this book and it's It's really kind of helped me find a center point each day as as things around us keep spiraling further out of control. And and, and me and Stan are very hopeful that people who read the book uh, will will come away with it feeling uh, less fear and less panic about the situation that we're in. And that's our hope. And that's certainly what it feels like so far, working on it. And in the book, we're, we're going as fast as we can. We want to get it out. As rapidly as possible, and with little, little luck, um, we hope that it would be in people's hands by next fall.
1: That's mm-hmm. awesome. Well, um, I'm just going to go with one more question that we had from a reader, and it's about your recommendations for other books, uh, climatologists that you like to read, or environmental writers, and also what kind of books do you like to read for leisure?
2: Hmm. Um, right, uh, you know, with Uh, I think with climate, to to kind of stay up on climate goings on and reporting, um, The Guardian newspaper has been doing a really good job of consistently publishing the most prescient studies that come out about what's happening in the Amazon or Greenland or the permafrost etc. The New York Times and the Washington Post have actually both also done a pretty fair job in the last year or two of also doing some good climate reporting, at least until it's gotten eclipsed by um, what's happening with the social unrest in the United States, coupled with the pandemic. Um, So everything's obviously getting overshadowed, but those have been um, really, really good sources of updated information um, for for me, even now that I'm not directly reporting on that anymore. Um, And then for leisure, gosh, I... um, when I really need to kind of get out of everything I like to read a, a bunch of different mountaineering books about um, um, you know previous expeditions on different peaks around the world just to kind of go away um, but then also uh, you know I, I, I've been reading uh, different books about indigenous culture uh, kind of you know backfilling my knowledge as I work on this contemporary book so reading books about crazy horse and and an um, in indigenous people's history of the United States and things like this, the kind of, you know, infill me as I uh, am, am interviewing all these different people that this knowledge is already firsthand. So um, kind of a myriad of, of, of things like that.
1: Wow, that sounds really great. That's like my reading list as well. <laughs> Those types of topics and authors. So that's great. Well, thank you so much.
0: That wraps up our St. Paul Public Library event with Darja Mail. Make sure to catch our next Clubbook podcast with Leila Lalami. Moroccan-American novelist Leila Lalami is the author behind the Pulitzer Prize finalist, The Moors Account, and National Book Award finalist, The Other Americans. Her newest book, Conditional Citizens, explores the hot button question, what does it mean to be American? Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons. Sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including Melsa, library strategies, and Minnesota's arts and cultural heritage fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.